On this episode of Jim Questions Everything, I talk with Corinne Goodwin, an advocate for people of transgender experience in my home state of Pennsylvania. Corinne's identity as a transgender woman is only part of who she is, but it also explains why her work as an advocate is so important. For one thing, she's not alone, not by a long shot. There's many people who are transgender as there are Subarus on the road. And the problem is that people of transgender experience are subject to all kinds of pain, be it in their relationships. So 57% of all transgender people have been rejected by family. Or sadly, in fear for their lives. Just in the first five months of this year, 30 transgender people have been murdered. Corinne gets personal about her own experiences including how she was raised and how she dealt with her own transition. Part of me, you always kind of look back and you go like, you know, what if? In addition to the personal stories, though, we also talk about the big picture trends in transgender experiences, including the pointed political attacks targeting young people. Why are we going after these kids? It just, it still doesn't compute for me. Give me some language I can use. Well, so the short answer is because they're easy targets. This episode was recorded in June also known as Pride Month. And I don't mind telling you, take pride in this conversation, not simply because it's important, it really is, but also because I made a new friend along the way. So with that, here's Jim Questions Everything with Corinne Goodwin. Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of Jim Questions Everything. I'm joined today by Corinne Goodwin, who is uh, an advocate, a father, a spouse, a woman, a friend, a business owner. And we have a lot to learn from Corinne today. So thanks so much for being here. Oh, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure. I really love your bio in many respects because you and I share a lot of the same words. I am also a spouse. I'm a father. I like to think of myself as an advocate. I'm a friend, I'm a business owner. I think really the only thing that's different is I'm a man, you're a woman. So, you know, we're, we're almost all the way there, uh, simpatico. And I'm, I'm glad to acknowledge that right off. Yeah, you know, it's, it's one of the things, you know, with transgender folk is that both from within the trans community and certainly from outside the trans community is that, you know, people often will see us as one, di- one dimensional and that, you know, well, you know, you're trans first and, you know, you're only trans. And, and the truth is, is that, you know, when I think of who I am and what I do and what's important to me, being trans and being an advocate for trans people is certainly high on the list. But those other adjectives are as if not more important, right? So my relationship with my wife and my relationship with my son, they come before everything else. Uh, after that, everything else falls in. So really, you know, for me, and I think for most transgender people, you know, trans is just, you know, another adjective. Yeah, that makes sense to me in, it's in a somewhat similar way. I don't lead with the fact that I'm a white male in my intro, introductions, uh, at least historically. That is changing a little bit, though, because I've been really conscious about especially in the course of this podcast and work that I'm doing, you know, I'm conscious about my identity and how I show up in certain situations. So it's interesting that, that you point out that you know, really, if I led with, I'm a white man <laughs> and that was the only, and that's where I left it, it would, 
it would bring a, a lot of heat into the conversation. Yeah. Uh, but if I, if I explain I'm a white uh, cis man who is here to learn about issues related to race or to identity or to gender or to any number of other issues, then what I've done is I've signaled, I, I understand um, how I show up in this room, but I also need you to know what I'm trying to learn or be present for. I don't always do that well. I'm not even sure I did it well in this moment, but, but I really like how you've framed this, which is to say, you know, today we're going to talk about issues related to transgender um, equity and advocacy, but it's not the sum total of who you are. And I appreciate you for pushing me on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I also love Marvel movies. So if you want, if you want to talk about, you know, Iron Man and you know Captain Marvel, I'll go all day on that stuff. So, well, you know. for sure, I struggled with Captain Marvel though. I feel like of all the movies, that was the one I struggled with most, and that was the one I was rooting for the most. I have two daughters in addition to a son, yeah. and that I couldn't follow. So, but you know what? Let's save that for another podcast. We could <laughs> we could spend a lot of time. Um, tell me about your work at the Eastern PA Trans Equity Project. What's what's that organization about? We kind of have two watchwords or taglines, if you want to think of it. So the first one is that we are trans people who help other trans people. Um, so it's really sort of about self-help. And the other one is that our motto is life begins now. And so what we are about is you know, really providing life-changing and often life-saving and certainly life-affirming direct assistance and services to people of transgender experience. So we, for example, we run four different peer-led uh, support groups. We have a name change project where we help people complete their legal name changes so that uh, they can be affirmed legally and have all their identification and everything else line up with their gender presentation. We help people with clothing, you know, to help them purchase gender affirming clothing. Just this morning, we provided a $3,000 grant to uh, make sure that we were able to keep a trans woman and their transgender daughter in housing. Uh, they were about to lose their housing and be evicted. This year, we provided four transgender students with college scholarships. So really what we're about is like, you know, what can we do to help a transgender individual really get on a, you know, an affirming path and often a life-saving path? And we serve a 10-county area in Pennsylvania. So we cover about 30% of the state's population. Our 10-county area has, uh, if you do the mathematics and you use the CDC estimate for transgender population, we have about 65,000 transgender people in our service area that we, that we try to serve in one form or another. Let me ask a question about that, because 65,000, as someone who's not versed in this work, I acknowledge that readily, which is why I'm here. I'm surprised that that feels like a high number. Would I be the first to say that? No, you wouldn't, right? So trans people, you know, there are people who, like myself, who identify trans feminine. There are people who identify trans masculine. There are people that identify non-binary. And there's lots of dis different estimates. So the low estimate for the population comes from the uh, Williams Institute at UCLA. It's a survey done about uh, six years ago, and they estimate that six-tenths of 1%, or one in every 162 people, are transgender. The high estimate comes from the University of Minnesota, 
where they did a survey of every high school student in the state of Minnesota, and they came up with a number of 3%. The middle estimate, which interestingly came from Donald Trump's CDC, is that 2% of the population. So that 65,000 is the middle estimate. And you know, a lot of trans folk, some people are kind of out loud and proud like myself. Uh, other folk are very closeted and for whatever reason feel they cannot be public with who they are. Then many people live what we call stealth. So you have you know, people who are in your community who are trans and you have no idea that they're transgender individuals. The way that I like to describe it is that in your area, Route, Route 81, right, is the main thoroughfare through uh, northeastern Pennsylvania. And you drive up and down uh, Route 81 and um, you see Subarus about every you know, 20 cars, you might run into a Subaru. Yeah, that's how many trans people are. There are as many people who are transgender as there are Subarus on the road. Subaru has about a 3% market share. Yeah. So every time you see a Subaru, you just go like, oh, there's another trans person going by. <laughs> they probably need to learn how to drive better. But, yeah. you know, but that, that really is you know, kind of how common we are. Another way to look at it is people with red hair. So if you know somebody who has red hair, statistically, you know somebody who's transgender. Because again, about 2% of the population has red hair or green eyes for that matter. And so you know, just about everybody I know knows somebody with red hair, but they don't always know somebody who's trans. Well, you know, I really like the framing of this in the analogy to Subaru, for example, uh, or, or red hair. But let's stay with the, the car analogy, because all respect to the Subaru lovers out there, um, it's an unexceptional vehicle, meaning if you see one on the road, you take no exception to it. Oh, there's a car. You yeah. probably notice first that it's green and then that it's Subaru. So I kind of think that you're working towards this end game of transgender community members being unexceptional, being ordinary, like uh, that person has brown hair is the thing you notice before yeah. their identity. And is that, is that, did I get that right? Well, yeah, well, I think that that's part of it, right? Part of it, so, okay. You know, I mean, if you really want to take out, you know, there are old, junky, rusty Subarus, and there are brand new, bright, shiny new ones, right? And there are brand new, bright, shiny trans folk who just came out of the closet and transitioned. There are people that have, you know, like me, you know, we're old, crusty ladies, and, <laughs> you know, and there's nothing exceptional about me. But, um, uh, but yeah, you know, we are everywhere. And the, the issue is, frankly, is stigma. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, why is it that, you know, fewer than 70% of Americans say that they know or have met a transgender person, right, where everybody has said that they've seen the Subaru. And the, and the answer is because many, many trans people, the majority of trans people are deathly afraid mm -hmm. of outing themselves. Mm -hmm. And there's lots and lots of good reasons for that. So 57% of all transgender people have been rejected by family. That includes me. Um, almost 30% of transgender people have been homeless at some point or other in their life. We are physically assaulted at uh, a rate, you know, like 16 times more than the general population. You know, um, it, it is really scary just this year. So just in the first five months of this year, 30 transgender people have been murdered specifically because they're transgender people. And so it takes a lot of bravery to decide to raise your hand and say, you know, I am a 
person of trans experience and you know, I'm going to proclaim who I am and I'm going to do it proudly, especially this month. So we're, you know, we're recording this in Pride Month, right? And, you know, in the fall, there's another day that called National Coming Out Day. And people tend to feel a lot of pressure that like in Pride Month, well, I have to be proud. And that means I have to come out or on National Coming Out Day, you know, I need to come out. You don't have to come out. If you don't feel safe, if you don't feel comfortable, you know, it is perfectly fine to live a stealth existence or to, you know, if you feel that you can't come out of the closet for whatever reason, you know, we're here to support you no matter what. Let me just unpack some of the mindsets with you, if you will. And, and I'm not sure exactly where I want to go with this, but I, I just want to think it out loud. So uh, just the act of um, being out is a risk. So um, people of trans experience who um, identify publicly are, are simply by definition of being themselves um, at risk of being harassed, assaulted, and murdered. And I gotta, I gotta tell you, I just, I guess I just don't get it. But, you know, that's not, that's not me um, patting myself on the shoulder. Let me unpack this a little bit further because the whole conceit of this series of conversations that I'm having through this podcast is to question things. So here's what I'm questioning. I grew up in a rural community in upstate New York, not too dissimilar from some of the rural communities here in Northeastern PA, and you know, not too dissimilar from communities you'd find across the country. And when we grew up, looking back, we had pretty hateful language. And you know, I don't wanna give airtime to that language, but you can guess what it is when it comes to homosexuality, sexual identity. It was, it was locker room talk, it was friends, making jokes and, you know, pretty cringeworthy stuff looking back. I'm not alone, you know, but I went through some sort of process and I, Corinne, I can't tell you what that process was over time. I have some ideas about finding myself in circumstances, situations where I was forced to just confront my own biases, not in a big seminal moment kind of way, but just over time, I started to understand power of that language and the hate behind it. Now I feel like I'm at a point where I just don't understand it, but in your work as an advocate, I guess, can you talk about mindsets and what's happening here? Why are people so worked up about it? When I go out and give talks about cultural competence for around transgender folk and transgender issues, I always use a quote from Star Wars. So I don't know if you're a Star Wars fan, but you know, most people should be if they aren't already, <laughs> right? right? So and, we're totally vibing here because I, I got Marvel. <laughs> By the way, did you notice the Endgame reference I, I'm, yeah. I used earlier? And, yeah. I, and I'm with you on Star Wars. So, so, so but so Yoda said, right? Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, and hate leads to suffering. Well, you really probably need to take it a little step earlier and say, so what creates fear? And what creates fear is something that you don't understand, right? We're naturally afraid of something that we don't understand. That creates, you know, these issues for people, you know, and, and, and by the way, I'm going to take a moment just to correct you. So I don't think Please. it's locker room talk. It's not locker room talk. It is hate speech. Yeah. Right? That's, um, you yeah. know, we, we make an excuse of it. It's like, well, you know, it's you know, locker room talk or boys will be boys or people will be people or, you know, it's dependent on the circumstance. You know, that's not what allies do. Allies, real allies will interrupt that talk and say that talk is wrong. And sometimes it takes people, you know, time to kind of get there, you know, raising your hand, you know, with a speaking up, you know, again, with a group of the people that you feel are your friends, 
that takes gumption and that takes strength and that takes you know a certain willingness to potentially you know sacrifice some relationships yeah but those are the things that true allies do not just for you know lgbtq people but for anybody right and i certainly you know it's interesting so you said you grew up in upstate new york i don't know where but i lived in glens falls new york for many years which is up you know near the adirondack mountains yep. in the middle of freaking nowhere <laughs> so, so i i really grew up right outside of new york city so moving to glens falls new york was like you know going from you know overdrive to first gear mm-hmm. but um but you know same kind of thing right you know so you know and you know when i graduated high school there was one person of color in the entire school mm-hmm. right and you know while i certainly at that point knew that i was a, a transgender individual there was no way that i was brave enough to raise my hand and say you know who I was and, you know, and, and you just put on this facade. And that's one of the things that we do in these quote unquote locker room situations is while we may feel uncomfortable, we put on a facade of comfort, right? right. With those conversations. Yeah. And it's a real problem, but, you know, getting back to the kind of the root can, cause thing, you know, what just, it really is, is a lack of understanding and fear. I want to, yeah, I want to come back to that lack of understanding and fear. And it, and I, and I want to stay with this locker room comment because it's a good push on your part, um, and I really appreciate it. And when I offered that up to you, I, I actually did so consciously saying at the time it was forgiven as locker room talk. And that was, that was what I was trying to convey. It was, it was locker room talk, so it was accepted. But, it, but that kind of talk that we had as, uh, as young people in rural, you know, similar to Glens Falls, it was just natural. It just came casually to us. What I now understand is hate speech. So if, if I gave the impression that I was trying to forgive it as locker room talk, I, I wasn't. I was actually trying to put a stamp on the fact that we would forgive that language as if it's locker room talk, but it really it is very much hate speech. And looking back, I understand that to be what it was. Um, just in the moment, I didn't. And it's, that's one of my, we all have these cringeworthy well, eras and, and, you know, and here's what I'll say to that, right? So, you know, certainly, you know, in my personal experience, right? So growing up and, you know, and, and by the way, it isn't just a rural phenomenon because no, I, I grew That's up true. most of, you know, my, my quote unquote wonder years, right? From, you know, up until the age of 15, you know, I lived right outside of New York City, right? So in an urbanized area and same thing. Right. So so the phenomena happens everywhere, you know, in all different communities. I knew that I was different and I knew that I was othered because of the language that was going on around me and the actions that were going on around me. Right. And while so I came out publicly as trans in my early 50s, you know, part of me always kind of look back and you go like, you know, what if. Right. So what if I had actually not had to live with all this, you know, internalized angst and suffering and, and all the other issues that that you know othered people go through for the first 50 years of my life on the other hand you know i got married to a wonderful person and i have a wonderful child and you know we've built a good lifestyle and those things probably would not have happened had i you know transitioned you know they might have happened differently but i probably wouldn't have met the specific person who's my wife and i probably wouldn't have a specific person who's my son right. and i wouldn't be living in the house i live in I wouldn't have had the career that I had mm-hmm. if I had transitioned early. But, you know, every day when I open my mouth and I speak and I have a masculine sounding voice and it, it, it creates, it truly creates pain, right? When I am misgendered on the phone 
because of my voice. Mm, yeah, there's there's so much um, pain that you've had to absorb that has been directed at you uh, with purpose, with intent, and perhaps without intent. But I, I would acknowledge that um, that doesn't lessen the pain. You, you mentioned voice, which hadn't occurred to me, but when you, when you said it, I want to offer this up, not, not as a, an explain away kind of thing, or even uh, maybe just in a relatable piece, but I worked for a, a woman, a cis woman, older now, I will call her Terry, and uh, she had uh, just naturally a very deep voice. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes people would mistake her for being a man because uh, she was a CEO, <laughs> uh, name was Terry and had a deep voice. So she'd get on the phone. This is going back before Zoom calls. And, and it was always funny when they would walk in and, and Terry's about four foot nothing, grandmother. You could see them go through this process here. You know, that's, it's a cute anecdote, but I don't know that she felt pain from that. She probably- Frankly, my wife has the challenge sometimes of being mm -hmm. misgendered on the phone. You know, and, and when you know, we have conversation about it, she goes like, well, I get misgendered on the phone and you know, it doesn't freak me out. <laughs> yeah. um, and, the, and the answer to that really is, is that when you're a, a person of transgender experience, if you think about your sort of your anxiety level on a scale of one to 10, I'm always like on an eight. Right, right. Yeah. And, and so it doesn't take much to get me, you know, over the line. Whereas, you know, if you're a cisgender woman, you know, your anxiety, you know, maybe your anxiety level is normally at a two, right? And it goes up to a five um, when you get misgendered. But it just sort of, you know, it, it's, it just sort of feels like piling on, mm. you know, and, and I'll give an, I'll just give a, you know, a real life example. So I'm a business owner. I own a consulting firm. I have people who work for me. Um, and so, you know, as an employer, I feel an obligation to, you know, I have to like go out and get the next deal, the next contract. Sure so that I can pay my people, right? Because they depend on me for paying their rent. A few years ago, I was in a negotiation with an existing client on a new deal. The, my normal day-to-day -day contact at this company, Fortune 50 company, very cool. You know, when I transitioned, they, the biggest question they had is, so does this mean you're gonna get a new email address? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah, that was a score. But during this, this is a, a pretty significant contract, it's a quarter million dollar deal. And so it would pay me and would pay my people for the next, you know, kind of year plus. We got on the phone with two level, person two levels up. So it was an executive vice president of this company. He's a pretty big guy. And they were misgendering me relentlessly on a conference call. Relentlessly. And speaking about me sort of like in third party. So they were in a conference room with a bunch of people and I'm on the phone, just me, myself and I. And, you know, this person would turn to somebody else in the room and, and say, well, you know, what do you think he's talking about here? Or what does he want? Or what does he this? Or what does he that? And, um, you know, the first time they misgendered me, you know, I corrected, I corrected them. The second time it happened, I corrected them. In my head, I'm doing the mathematics of, do I really make an issue over them misgendering me? Or do I take the money? Because I need to feed my people. And the answer is, is that I took the money. And so I just steamed about it for, you know, this hour long conference call. And I have been steamed about it for the past three years. I tell this story at least once a week, mm. right? Because it just, it's like, you know, dying of a thousand paper cuts. Yep. Yep. That's kind of how it feels. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's in, it's the kind of conflict that shouldn't happen for sure, but it, it somehow it, 
it seems to come up time and again. Well, and, um, and people people ask about so what is gender dysphoria, right? Yeah, and, actually, this is this is good. Thank you for this because you know one thing I, I want to acknowledge is we're we're pretty far into this conversation, and I think you you hear in me an attempt to use the right language, and I'm I'm I feel like I'm getting there, um, and I want to talk about that a little bit because. It occurs to me that not everyone is as comfortable with this language, certainly as you are, not only having a trans experience, and again, I'm not sure if that's the right language, but being an advocate, I'm working on it consciously. So can you walk us through some of the really important language that we need to be? Yeah, sure. sure. So, so, so I'm going to start with gender dysphoria, just because that's okay. kind of what we, we've been talking about. Okay. So dysphoria is a term. If you look up dysphoria in you know, your Merriam-Webster dictionary or dictionary.com, the definition of dysphoria is a feeling of anxiety or restlessness, all right? Gender dysphoria just means that you're feeling anxiety and restlessness around your perception of your gender. And so when I explain you know, dysphoria is to people, to groups of cisgender people, you know, I kind of like said, so, all right, so let's just say you're walking down the street and then somebody assaults you, kidnaps you, blindfolds you, throws you in the trunk of a car, drives you to an airport, throws you on an airplane, flies you across the globe, opens the door of the airplane and says, hey, we're over China. And they push you out of the plane. Now you got to figure out how to get home and you probably don't speak Chinese. Would that make you feel a little anxious and restless? Of course it would, right? So you would have you know, dysphoria over the fact that you don't speak Chinese, you got kidnapped, you don't like being blindfolded, and maybe you don't like to fly right? You don't like being in the trunk of a car. Well, that's what happens with gender dysphoria with transgender people. It well, the thing is that for us, though, it often happens 24 seven. Mm. So the other the other terms, and, and you know, I mean, I could go into, you know, usually I do cultural competency trainings, and it take like, you know, an hour or two. But so four kind of key things. So the first is gender identity. So gender identity is about how you perceive yourself on the scale of masculine to feminine in your own mind. And you know, you can be hyper feminine, you can be hyper masculine, and you can be anywhere in between. So for myself, for example, I tend to fall on the feminine side of the spectrum, but I'm not a girly girl. Usually I'm wearing like jeans and a basic t-shirt or top, like nothing fancy. Pretty rare that I'm wearing a dress. Okay. And that gets into the second kind of piece of around gender, which is gender expression. So gender expression is you know, kind of how you dress and your mannerisms and the way you communicate. So, you know, for example, you know, I'm, I'm, today I'm wearing a pair of shorts and I put on a nice top because we're on a Zoom, but I was wearing a t-shirt a half hour ago, right? That was kind of ratty and had paint on it. So uh, my gender expression is usually kind of falls a little more towards androgyny, frankly. Um, from a clothing perspective, but gender expression is also like, how do you carry yourself? How do you walk? How do you use your arms and your hands when you speak? I was socialized as a male. And so I tend to have sort of a more male aspect of communication. So like you put me in a room, you know, in a meeting and I will take over that meeting, right? <laughs> Which is, right. you know, kind yeah. of a male trait. Yeah, we, we're, we're conditioned to, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, so the, the the next piece is, 
attraction, right? So that's about your heart. So it's who do you, who do you love, right? Who do you want to have sex with? So you might want to have sex with women. You might want to have sex with men, might be somewhere in between. So generally speaking, I'm attracted to women, but if a guy has a nice ass, I'm going to take a look, right? And then the last piece is sex characteristics. And this is where people get wrapped around the axle a lot, right? Is you know, they kind of think like, well, if you have a penis, you're a man. If you have a vagina, you're a woman. Then maybe they think a little more, more sophisticatedly. They go like, well, you know, you have XY chromosomes, you're a man, XX, you're a woman. But nature loves variation. And there are like 20 different types of sex chromosomes. There are 23 markers that they've discovered that could indicate whether or not you might become a transgender individual, just like there's gender there's markers for breast cancer or for blue eyes. But other sex characteristics are, for example, your voice, or do you have an Adam's apple? Do you have a, you know, facial hair? Do you have broad shoulders? Those are all sex characteristics that people sort of use as visual clues to determine you know, somebody's gender, even though gender really resides in the brain. So all of those things kind of go on a spectrum and they all help to contribute to your sense of self. The four keywords in there, and I'll try my best. I've been taking notes. Gender identity, gender expression, attraction, and sex characteristics. Yeah. And so I appreciate you walking through that language. And given the opportunity, I'm going to keep trying to use the language in the right way. But I've also noticed you've used a couple of, of phrasings that I'm less familiar with, and I want to, I want to understand them. So you used a phrase called people of trans experience. Mm -hmm. Because I'm not versed in this work, I'm not, I don't know that I've heard that specifically. So can you help me understand that phrasing a little bit? Transgender, the term transgender, when people think of that term, they tend to think of, you know, people that transition to become women, tra people that transition to become men. But there is actually a huge number of identities underneath the transgender umbrella. So for example, uh, I identify gender queer personally, right? So I, I tend to be on the feminine side of the spectrum, but I don't see myself as a, you know, quote unquote, total woman, or, you know, if you wanted to call it that, right? So I haven't had any, any confirming surgeries. And that's what you know, people kind of think about that. I do take hormones. So I am not what is termed a transsexual. A transsexual is somebody who has all those surgeries. There are people who are non-binary and they don't identify necessarily with either gender. Um, there are people who identify as two-spirit, which is a, you know, a, a worldwide phenomenon, you know, in Native American culture and Indian culture and um, several others, you know, where, you know, people who, you know, identify with traits of both, you know, men, femaleness and maleness. And these people are revered in these cultures. There's lots of different identities underneath the, the trans umbrella. And just because you know, this idea of using the term trans or transgender tends to, in many people's minds, kind of put you in the box of you are transitioning or transition. Right, right. Um, we tend to use kind of this term of, you know, transgender experience or trans experience yeah. Um, to yeah, that's really kind helpful. of broaden that. Yeah, I really appreciate that because you're right. It's you know, if we're lazy about it, we use the, the easiest, most prominent uh, word, uh, which is transgender. And we just might apply that to everyone's experience. But what you're helping me understand, which I knew, but you're helping me articulate in my own right, you know, there are so many experiences under that umbrella that we have to be yeah. careful about just grouping them all together. 
Now, there's another word you used called othered. Help me understand that a little bit as well, if you wouldn't mind. Well, so othering or, or being othered isn't something that, you know, people in marginalized communities, not just trans folk, but, um, you know, if you're a person of color or you are economically destitute or, you know, you're a Native American or you, you know, from West Virginia, I mean, you can be othered in almost anything, right? But it's where, you know, you are singled out as a member of a subset of people who are viewed incorrectly and often negatively, right? And so I'll use West Virginia as an example, okay? So I remember uh, I, I was working with a, a gentleman in one of my prior careers, and he was from West Virginia. Another person who I work with who grew up in Manhattan walked up to him one day and said, hey, do you know how the, we know that the toothbrush was invented in West Virginia? And he goes like, no. He said, because in West Virginia, people only have one tooth. Ooh. Well, how did that make that guy feel that he's from West Virginia? Right. right? So right. he was othered in that particular instance, right? Yeah. If you are a person of transgender experience, so I have a, a woman who's a, a trans woman who she is six feet, two inches tall in her bare feet. So if she wears, you know, a pair of heels because she's going out for a, you know, a fancy dinner or whatever it is, you know, she's six, four, six, five, six, six. And, you know, she gets stares. Well, is she getting stares because she's a trans person or because six and a half foot tall women tend right. to get stared at? Right, right. And they are being othered. Right. Yep. You're yep. being othered in that situation. Yeah. So people of trans experience, you know, can be othered for lots of reasons. So, if you know, and, and if you think about these various identities that you may have and how they intersect, maybe you're a person of trans experience, you are African-American, you are poorly educated, um, maybe you're also an immigrant, right? Four strikes and you are potentially more than out. Right. Yeah, there's, there's no shortage of ways to, to feel othered. Uh, yeah. or to be othered uh, yeah. in, in that scenario. You're right. So what I find really interesting is uh, I did not enter into this conversation with a sense of fear about, about any of these issues, really. Uh, and, I, and I like to think that it's through a concerted effort to, to just try and, and be open and honest and understand. And I've had conversations about poverty. I've had conversations about race and education. I wanted to have this conversation here but, you know, I want to circle back to the Star Wars quote, which is about fear. And unfortunately, I'm kind of alone in, in well, let me back that up. I don't feel alone in wanting to have this conversation, but I do feel like too few people want to have it for whatever reason. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just, I want to come back to this fear piece because I wasn't afraid coming into this conversation. I'm still not, but it's easier for me, I guess, because I, I, I just don't want to be afraid of these issues. I just want to understand them more. So you've helped me understand a great deal, but fear wasn't an issue for me. Does that make sense? Let me just pause there. Like fear is not an issue, and yet I've learned so much. Um, so I would say that fear isn't, isn't an issue right now. Okay. It might be an issue for you at some other point. Tell so, me if you, so if you are at a restaurant with a group of friends 
and one of your friends in that restaurant says something transphobic, are you going to speak up or are you going to blow it off and make polite conversation? Right, right. And that you're probably, you're right to push on that. I think if I could look into the future, I think I would have a moment where I would reevaluate that friend and I would speak up. And, and I feel comfortable and confident saying that, yes, I would speak up. Uh, now, is that universally true? I have to be honest and say, I don't know. If yeah. my 80-year-old father, and I don't think he would, but if he did, wanted to come at me about this issue of this conversation, I'm not sure I would come back at him the same way I would come back at a contemporary or at someone in the workplace. Yeah. Um, I just want to acknowledge that because... Yeah, you, so you, listen, I think these things... So, you know, we were talking about my story before about negotiating that contract. Yeah. I am, I am an advocate, right? I'm an advocate for my community and I didn't advocate in that moment, right? And I think it's important for folks like me to acknowledge, right? That folks like you and frankly, everybody else, we have our good days, we have our bad days, we have our good moments, we have our bad moments, right? Um, the key is, is are we making forward mm. progress? I'll give you another example. So uh, when I came out to my doctor, this is many years ago, and I wasn't even sure at that point that I wanted to medically transition. I just wanted them to put it in my record because at that point there were concerns that, you know, Obamacare was going to go away and that, you know, I would, I would literally be considered a pre-existing condition <laughs> and I wanted it like in the record. Right. And so I just said like, listen, you know, I was there for a physical and, I just, and he's like asking all the questions that they ask you in the beginning, you know, how you've been feeling, you know, do you, do you wear a bicycle helmet and a seatbelt and all the other stuff that your, you know, family doc asked, right? And then I said, like, and then he goes, is there anything else to the F? You just make a note, you know, I want you to know that I'm a person of transgender experience. And I just like, would like that to be in my record. And the very first words that this doctor said to me is, yeah, I don't do that. Oh, interesting. Right. And you know, in my mind, I'm kind of going, I didn't ask you to do anything other than to write something down on a piece of paper or in right. the computer. What I heard, now, now he might have been saying, yeah, I don't provide hormones to transgender people, or I don't do surgeries, or I what I heard is, is I will not serve you. And interestingly enough, he completed my physical without physically touching me. I don't know how you do that. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently he can. And the Literally result called was, a physical. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and, but the result was, is that, you know, I am a relatively affluent, highly educated, smart woman who has health insurance, by the way, and I didn't go back to the doctor for four and a half years. Mm. And I'm pre-diabetic, probably not a smart idea. So these actions, these words have very concrete issues. You know, 55% of transgender guys will not go to the doctor. 55% refuse to go to the doctor. Yeah, yeah. A casual comment by that doctor led to life-altering healthcare decisions for you, mm -hmm. four years. And it was like five words in yeah. just as many seconds. And, it, and it, it completely changed the trajectory of your own self-care, uh, which is kind of stunning. And, it, right. and, and I think- And really what all we want people to say, right? So when someone comes out to you, 
whether you're a medical professional or not, right? So your next door neighbor comes out to you, you know, your son or daughter comes out to you. You know, these are the, this is the magic phrase. Thank you for telling me. I want you to know it doesn't change anything. How can I help? That's it. Yeah. If you just do that, you know, my anxiety goes from a 15 down to a five, and now right. we can have a productive conversation. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I've, I feel like I'm personally in a, in a pretty comfortable place by comparison. So if you look at my profile, I told you a little bit about how I grew up. I am cisgendered, I'm a father, I'm of privilege. What else would I use to describe? There's, I guess you could, you could conceive of me as having uh, of being like your doctor. Like it wouldn't be a stretch to think a guy with my profile would be like that doctor and just kind of in my own way say, yeah, I don't do that. But that's, you know, it's not what I'm about. Yeah, it's just so. So I like to think that in the past when friends have come out, I've been receptive. I, I can't promise you that I was, meaning did I clearly say, thank you for telling me um, this changes nothing between us. How can I help? I have a few friends who've come out. I, I remember distinctly coworkers where I actually my response was, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> so but that was coming out. Uh, as uh, gay or lesbian. I'm trying to think of an experience where someone has come out as trans to me, and I confess, I, I don't think I, I have. But actually, I'll, I'll say this, something popped into my head. All right, you ready for this one? I got married in 2005, which meant in 2004, we went to Arthur Murray Dance School for eight weeks. Wasn't so bad, I'm not gonna lie to you, it felt pretty good. But one of the painful things about those dance schools is you have to switch partners. And that for me is just painful by definition because I want to dance with my wife, not with a bunch of people I don't know. But I remember now thinking back, there was a woman clearly of trans experience. And I remember thinking about that at the time. We danced for a while, then we moved to the next partner. And it was kind of unexceptional in that way. And I, I like to think that maybe that was a small moment where and why she probably loved those classes because that was a, an environment where she could be fully in her identity and and there was no commentary it was kind of a nice moment but but i appreciate where you're coming from which is how you can be receptive but let me let me shift a little bit because i i don't think fear is my issue and and i keep saying that but i believe it to be true but here is here is my fear though which is i'm worried about the kids in our communities and i and i need i feel the need to talk about that a little bit because i'm seeing it I'm seeing it in the legislation. I, I, I recently ran unsuccessfully for school board here, but one of the comments or a question posed to me was, how will you protect us from transgender, so-called transgendered uh, students? That was their phrase. How will you protect our girls? And, and here's, Corinne, two things that, that bother me, which is I did not go after that issue. Probably if I had had this conversation beforehand, I would have more language and more comfort, comfort in doing that. Um, but I didn't go after that issue. And my other issue is, you know, I just don't get what the problem is. So you're seeing this a lot in your advocacy work. So, so can we talk about this? I mean, why, why are we going after these kids? It just, it still doesn't compute for me. Give me some language I can use. Well, so the short answer is because they're easy targets. Ooh. So, um, and, and I'll give you my kind of personal opinion on the macro level, why this is going on. And then, you know, and then we can talk you know, specifically about some of the social issues around this legislation. But first things first, when you think about, so what is driving this 
nationally right now. So right now there's over 173 bills, 173 bills. We only have 50 stinking states, right? So 173 bills, and they've actually been introduced in a little over 20 states that are specifically anti-transgender pieces of legislation. The reason why these bills are being introduced, interestingly enough, they all read almost identically, right? So if you look at the quote unquote, you know, Fairness in Women's Sports Act in Pennsylvania, it reads virtually word for word identical to the one in Idaho, to the one in Iowa, to the one in Tennessee, and to the one in Florida that was just signed a couple of days ago. Right, right. Um, they are being written by organizations like the Americans Defending Freedom and the Family Research Council. And these organizations are listed as certified hate groups. They have been fighting anti the anti-LGBTQ battle for decades and they've lost repeatedly. So they lost on don't ask, don't tell in the military. They lost on gay marriage. They lost on adoption. So they lose all that stuff. And if they don't start raising money, they all go out of business and these people don't have jobs. So what's the next target? The next target was transgender people in bathrooms. And they lost on that, by the way. Right, right. And so what's the next thing? It's transgender kids and how these kids are being you know, mutilated and horrible things done to them against their will and all this other stuff. And you know, that you know, it's not fair to the cisgender girls and things like that. So what is driving it? What's driving it is a few hate groups, you can count them on one hand, who are pushing this, pushing this, pushing this, pushing this, and they are using it to leverage financial contributions. And in exchange for those financial contributions, they give that money in turn to political candidates who in turn do what the people who give them money want, right? So that's sort of the macro level, my personal view. What is the area of concern that people have? You know, if you were talk to an individual, you know, so this person, when you were running for school council said, you know, how are you going to protect my kids? Well, I think there's two things that drive that. Number one is misogyny, right? So just this idea that, you know, men have to protect women, which is a completely misogynistic worldview. And, and you know, probably if you talk to your spouse or most other women, they're going like, yeah, I don't need any man to protect me. I can take care of myself, right? But there is this you know, sort of misogynistic worldview. And then the second piece is that the messaging that's going across is that transgender people are a threat. Well, when you look at the actual statistics and you do the math, you know, like I said, you know, transgender people are way more likely than any other marginalized group in society likely to be physically assaulted. There's never been an assault by a transgender person anywhere in the United States you know, against a, a, a cisgender woman in a bathroom. Almost 60, 57% of transgender people, including myself, will do everything possible not to use a public restroom or a restroom in, in a school because we know that we could be assaulted, frankly. And we know that you know, when we are assaulted and the police are called, usually we're the ones who get the blame around these sports acts. So the fact is like here in the state of Pennsylvania, when you ask the people, and I have personally asked the people who sponsor this bill, so can you name 
uh, situation in the state of Pennsylvania where a transgender student is, you know, blowing everybody else away, and they cannot. They're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. And it really is just all about this, you know, create these organizations creating fear, and fear creates anger, and anger creates hate. And then it all rolls downhill against a mar an already marginalized group, and it's just making it worse. Yeah, it really is. It really does have an amplifier effect. I mean, fear is seemingly very profitable for these groups. Uh, they can get a lot of airtime around it, and they can leverage it for contributions. And the problem is it just keeps showing up in individual behaviors and actions. And well, and the interesting thing, so I forget which one of the U.S. Courts of Appeals it was, but not too long ago, um, there was a lawsuit brought by some parents with the support of the um, Family Research Council, a hate group, suing, saying that, you know, this school shouldn't allow transgender students to use a locker room, locker room or restrooms. And interestingly, what the court ruled is that locker rooms and for that matter, public restrooms are not in fact private spaces. They are semi-private spaces. If they were private spaces, the doors and the restrooms would go all the way down to the floor and all the way up to the ceiling and you wouldn't be able to see through the cracks. And we all know that you can't, mm -hmm. right? If they were private spaces, they would have private showers and locker rooms. They're not, they're semi-private spaces. And what the court said, and I think this is amazing. It was an amazing ruling. They said, if you have a problem sharing a semi-private space with a transgender person, then you should go to the private all-gender bathroom, right? Don't, make, don't discriminate against a transgender person because they're just there trying to pee. If you got a problem, then you go. Right. Then right. you leave. And I think that was a wonderful way for them to kind of cut the Gordian knot, frankly. Well, it is a wonderful way, but I guess my concern is in application, we're not seeing that on the ground. We're still seeing fear and backlash and oh, yeah. I'm an easy sell on this stuff. Like I came to you because I wanted to talk about this stuff and get smarter on it. Yeah. Um, how do you, how do you break through the folks who just refuse to spend time? I mean, even if I put this conversation in front of a high schooler who was really just adamantly opposed to all things. Mm -hmm. equity. We, we wouldn't break through. And, I, and I'm struggling, Corinne, I'm struggling with how to be someone of my profile talking to someone else of my profile and convincing them that this is an issue they should care about. Like not only should they not inject hate into these issues, but they should also care about this stuff. And I, I feel like I will just beat my head against a wall. Yeah. Much like the work you do is probably feels like that on a, you Sometimes. know, 24 hour basis. <laughs> But I, I don't even, you know, it's going to be a process. I'm not saying we'll figure it out in this, you know, our conversation, but I'm still not there yet. Like, I feel like I'm close. So I, I think that it comes down to a couple of things. So the, the, the first is, is, you know, do what a great ally does, right? Which is when somebody says those darn transgender people or, you know, they want, you know, whatever it is, you know, just, you know, you just say, you know what, I got to tell you. I met a transgender person the other day. Her name was Corinne. You know, she's not only stunningly beautiful, but well-spoken, you know, and she just wants to be able to go. This, this is what trans people want, right? So when I do trainings, this is what I say. We want to get a good education. Why do we want a good education? 
because we want to get a good job. Why do we want to get a good job? So we can do what every American does. We go out and buy stuff, right? <laughs> and then, then we, when we buy enough stuff, we retire and we enjoy our stuff. Right. right. That's what transgender people want. We want what everybody else wants. We don't want anything more. We don't want anything less. You know, you just say like, yeah, I, you know, I, have, a, I have a transgender friend and her name is Corinne. And I got to tell you, she's wonderful. And, you know, you just start, you know, you know, the way that you win these wars is not in, in huge battle. They're in little skirmishes, right? You're going to win in increments. And it feels like at times you're ripping your fingernails out. I know what it feels like for me. But you start with those small statements. And, you know, and then, you know, when, you know, the person stands up in the school board meeting, then, you know, you stand up right after them. And one of the big issues we have, and it's not just around transgender rights, it's about everything, right? Is that, you know, I firmly believe there are way more good people than bad people in this world. The problem is, is the bad ones make a lot more noise. Mm, so the way you fix it is that the good people need to start making noise. Right, right. Well, um, I really appreciate that. The call to action is to just continue to make noise and let the good people win. I have to say that in in giving me some of that language to use, you're allowing me to call you a transgender friend. And I think the kind of the nicest thing is I made a friend today. So I really appreciate you serving up that word friend because I feel like I've learned a ton. I've gotten to know you a little bit. We've shared our stories and, you know, it's not every Friday I get to make a new friend. So I mean that. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been just a, exactly the kind of conversation uh, I'd hoped for. And at this point, you know, I do invite folks who've come on this little podcast of ours to ask me a question. You know, I always say this is about Jim questions everything in the pursuit of trying to understand anything that comes his way. So I guess, Corinne, do you have a question for me? Yeah. So in the spirit of making noise, what tangible action can I expect from you in the next 10 days to stand up for people like me? Spoken like a true community organizer, <laughs> someone who wants to get stuff done. What tangible action can you expect from me in the next 10 days is a good question. And I like the precision of it because uh, I've already told you I'm an easy sell on this. That's not enough. Um, an ally is not only one who is supportive, but acts in support of. So let me commit to this. I have, well, there's two things come to mind. I'm, I'm very quickly going to produce this podcast and market it in LinkedIn and Facebook uh, and Instagram. And in doing so, I like to think that I'm signaling this, I believe, which is these conversations need to happen and we need to improve our understanding and improve our language, get more comfortable with it and, and be very okay with these things. So that's one thing, Corinne, that comes to mind, but we already knew that was happening. We're recording the podcast as yeah. we speak. But I think the second thing that comes to mind is actually I have two more things. One is I'm going to write about it. I, I have, I'd like to write about our conversation and the process that I'm going through. And so I will commit to that, writing a companion piece uh, to this podcast uh, as a reflection. And, and the third thing is I'm going to be very intentional in listening and responding in kind. So we talked about you know, scenarios that might come up where if someone throws out a transphobic comment or a snide remark, mm-hmm. I need to be comfortable calling it out and, and speaking to it. And so 
I can't predict that that will happen, but I'm confident uh, it'll happen. Maybe not in the next 10 days, but probably in the next 30 days, the next 60 days, something will come out. Okay. And I'm, and I feel more ready than ever to speak my mind uh, in support of friends like you. Yeah. And, and I'll just say, you know, listen, there are lots of great ways to be an ally. June is, is LGBTQ Pride Month. It's important to be an ally, not just in Pride Month. It's important to be an ally year round. And there's lots of ways to be an ally. So, you know, allies write letters to the editor. Allies, you know, they stand up and call out inappropriate behavior at a cocktail party. Allies have respectful disagreements. Allies give to nonprofits like the one that I run, right? So that we can, you know, pay for somebody's name change as an example. Allies become better educated. You know, there's, there's lots of things that allies can do. The key, the key is, is that you do something. So, you know, I like to say that we're like sharks. If we stop swimming, we're going to die. And so the only way for trans folk to get to where we need to be, and for all marginalized groups, is we have to keep moving. And some days we're going to go back an inch or two. Some days we're going to go forward, you know, a mile. Other days it might be a few feet. But as long as we are moving, we're alive and we can make something good happen. If not for us, for someone else. Well, we sure made something good happen here today. And I hope you will consider me an ally, both uh, in my words and in my actions over time. And that I can earn the title friend uh, over and over again. Thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate you giving me your time in this very busy and very important month. One of 12 months that should be deemed pride. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. 